You're listening to a special edition of Bad Intonation. My name is Michael Elves, UMFM Program Director, and uh, this is the last in a series of three takeovers for Chops Talks, a series of conversations with artists playing the 2018 TD Winnipeg International Jazz Festival. Uh, you can check out past interviews on SoundCloud slash UMFM 1015. Uh, and coming up today, we're going to be talking to three great artists and uh, we're, we're going to be talking to Nick Blacka of Go Go Penguin, to Dan Weiss of Dan Weiss's Stare Baby, and to uh, Michael Kaysammer, Canadian jazz legend. He's coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, but first, we're going to start things off with Ellen Doty, who is playing tonight at Kitchen Sink. Uh, 6 p.m. dinner seating, I believe, is sold out, and then a 9 p.m. cocktail seating. There are still tickets so far as I know. Go check her out great Canadian jazz vocalist, we're going to hear a track called I Fall For You Again from her 2014 record, Gold. Won't 
Well, pianist Michael K. Sammer's latest is something new. He'll be bringing it to the Jazz Winnipeg Festival Saturday, June 23rd at Knox United Church, and he joins us on the line now. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Now, this record, I have to ask in terms of how you assembled all the people that uh, you you got to participate in this record. Like, was it simply a matter of like, hey, do you want to do this? Or like, what's the approach to get this many guests and, and participants? Yeah, it all kind of started with the um, the rhythm section and the core group of the record. And basically, I went into it um, with the thought, who do I want to play with? Who do, wanna ha- who do I want to have on the record? And for me, friends and people you get along with is one of the biggest criteria. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're great players should be a given. And uh, I wanted to do it in, in New Orleans with... Um, some some of my favorite rhythm section players, some of my favorite bass players, some of my favorite drummers, percussionists, and that's how it started. And then it basically the uh, the other guests who are um, instrument um, soloists, uh, vocalists, that just kind of fell into place by since they self produced it by sitting in the control room and thinking, you know, who would sound great on this is Neville or I don't know whoever, and just calling him and saying, hey, you want to come over and record? And um, I've never had more fun doing a record because I had zero thought about what anyone else <laughs> thinks. It was really just, how do I want to make a record? So uh, sitting behind the the boards as the producer and, mm-hmm. and kind of reevaluating your performance or your music and, and the recordings, like, are you able to put on a different hat and, and look objectively at what you've recorded? Like, how, how do you kind of, like, compartmentalize or, or reconcile the two things? Well, the uh, that is where self-producing can go wrong a lot of times, is exactly what you were saying. And, and um, maybe 10, 15 years ago, it would have gone wrong for me, too. But at this point where I'm at, um, you know, I love playing piano more than anything, and I love it more than I ever have and singing and writing, being the artist. But the producing part of it is almost as enjoyable for me if it's my own music or someone else's music. And so I'm able at this point to put that different hat on because you have to be, um, you have to be honest with yourself. And I think 
maybe age has something to do with it, maybe um, lifestyle. But I think it's just what you have to be honest with yourself throughout the day, even if it has nothing to do with music. Um, and you have to get to a point where that is how you live your life, where you don't really, you know, fool yourself by, by convincing yourself certain things are going on in your life that, that you're not honest about. And that's, if you translate it directly into the music, uh, it's not that hard, actually. Because a lot of times when you're an artist, you think everything you do is great. But that's just not the case. And uh, and that's where self-producing can go wrong. But I think I'm at a point where I can tell myself, yeah, that really isn't so good, Michael. <laughs> so you said that you like producing almost as much as, as piano playing. What is it about yeah. producing that you, you glom on to? Well, it, it's... Um, it's kind of like, it feels like you can shape music and sound in your mind and then translate it and see if you can actually put it on record what you've imagined and what you've seen in your mind. It's I imagine um, being a conductor and having a symphony orchestra in front of you and shaping music through other people that way would be a very similar experience and must be an amazing experience, but that's kind of what I love about it. I almost... I wouldn't say I love it more, but it's it's uh, you can get inside the music more from that angle rather than just being there and playing. So is it like a deeper level of like the same thing with songwriting where you hear a song in your head and then how you realize it? Yeah, it's very similar. It's just you're, you're instead of um, hearing melodies or hearing lyrics or subject matter, you're just hearing the overall soundscape and, and what it should sound like and how do you get there right so did you take like different approaches for each different song i mean because there's there's a variety of participants and, and sounds on this record like is is the approach uniform for you as producer or is it like you tailor it to whomever is involved on that particular track no it's for me it's uniform in the way that it's all about getting the honesty out of someone's performance, meaning um, uh, really just hiring the right people for the right track and not trying to make someone do something that might not be their thing or that even if it's outside someone's comfort zone, even if um, someone who usually plays rock all of a sudden is on a jazz track, it really just doesn't matter. Music's music, and it really just matters that you make that person feel comfortable um, by, by, by letting them know that you really just want them, their personality and their playing, and it doesn't have to be something, anything else, you know, like it doesn't have to be, that's the only way to get a great performance out of anyone. So as producer, are you kind of like, like a coach with like a locker room talk sometimes with the artists, like, you know, motivating them and, and, Kind of cajoling mm -hmm. them. I think it, I think uh, the stuff you don't say is where it's at. Because you, as soon as you go in and you tell someone what to do, their brain works a certain way. Of are they accomplishing what 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 the producer needs? Are they doing a good job? Doesn't matter who it is. That's just human behavior. And um, and I think it just if what you don't say and how you make people feel. Just personally, just just you know, one human being across from another human being, just how you make them feel in the room. 
I think that's kind of where it's at. Is that something? And there's different ways of producing, and this is just what I think works for me. Is it something you've gleaned from working with other producers that you know they've maybe told you to go a certain way, and then your reaction is is predicated on that? I think a lot of things. How I approach my music and my business and my touring is actually from um, experiences from the past, and not just always the good ones, but exactly that is that you might have been, or I might have been in a situation where afterwards I realized that just didn't work, and I know why it didn't work, and Maybe I should have trusted my gut instead of following someone else's thoughts. And um, so there's, there's a lot of trust within yourself that you just trust that you know what's best, you know. And that has nothing to do with ego. That's really just you know what you're good at. Experience and self-assuredness. Yeah, yeah and, and then this has also got me to the point of um, wanting to produce more other people's music a little bit, you know, and, and because it's just, it's super fun. So how do you go about like finding opportunities to do that? Like, are you contacting certain artists that you'd like to work with or like kind of putting feelers out or how do you kind of? Yeah. The reason why I call the record something new is because I, I, that, that is, that was my new approach to doing this record. I thought it might be fun to just start it with my own and start producing some, some other people, some, some vocalists and, um, and then uh, this is kind of what you have to do. I don't really have a huge track record of producing other people because it's not been what I've, you know, what I spent my time with, although I've done a couple of them, um, records that I've done okay or have done well, but uh, I'm not known as a producer producing other people's music. So it's just like any business, you have to kind of... Um, promote yourself, quote-unquote, by approaching other people, maybe someone who you really like, or maybe you hear something about in, in someone else's music and you go, hey, what do you think of this? And if there's ever an opportunity, maybe we can work together. So when you say hear something else in someone's music, like, are you going to a lot of live shows or listening to a lot of like existing no. records? Or what are you kind of, what yeah, are you searching for? I'm not, I just let it come towards me. I don't really search for it. When I listen to records, I usually have a huge record collection, vinyl collection from the time when I grew up, and I'm still, I find myself listening through that collection rather than um, a lot of new music. New music, I really just listen to, you know, Spotify or something in the car. But um, I'm not really looking, but there's always there's always things that, that kind of pop up or you think of an artist um, and you go, you know what, sound, what would sound great if this person would do this or... And the artist might not be really into that kind of a thing, and that's fine. But um, it could be that there's a situation where it kind of, you know, the artist is ready to do something that they might not think of, and I might have thought of something, and then it's the good, it just has to grow organically out of that. Right. So I think I'm going to work on a couple of projects sometime this year when see what comes out of it. Like the, one of the singers on, on this record, Curtis Salgado, who's a great blues singer from Portland. Um, we, I played in Portland and because he sang a song on the record, I asked him to come on stage and sing the song. And then we just hung out afterwards and something came out of that. And so that's kind of, you know, how you, how you uh, come up with concepts. Right. 
the fact that you recorded in New Orleans, was that like an intentional decision because of kind of like the sound of the city or a specific like recording studio that you wanted to work in? Like, how did you arrive at that? Uh, it was real. Uh, everything I grew up listening to as a kid was jazz from New Orleans from my dad's record collection. And, and I love New Orleans and I've lived down there for a little while before Katrina. And to me, that whole second line rhythm and that whole kind of drumming and piano playing coming from New Orleans is what really turns my crank. This is what I love in jazz. And so, you know, there's, there's a couple of ways to go about it. I can, I have friends who, um, who are musicians there. So I could either go there where actually the sound is, or I could try and recreate it in some studio in Toronto or something. And I just didn't see the point in that. And I just went there. And did it make it easier to get a few folks, uh, into the studio if they were like in town? Absolutely. I mean, um, and, and you have different ideas. If I would have recorded it in Toronto, I might have thought of different people to, to sing certain songs. But um, that's the other, you know, you have to be kind of in the moment and open to what comes your way. So if you're sitting in New Orleans or if you're sitting in, the, in Toronto or in Winnipeg in a studio, you want to get that feeling into the record. So, uh picking people who are close by and the spontaneity of it or um, the food that you eat. Like everything comes in uh, how you feel and how you record. And uh, I just wanted that certain sound, so I went there. So you kind of take like a holistic approach to your to your music making then, it sounds like. Even, even, yeah, your, even your diet impacts it. You know, that's... Um, if it doesn't, if it doesn't have that kind of connection with other things in my life, then I'm not really interested to record. <laughs> to be honest with you, like it has to be more than just here's a bunch of songs. Let's record them because we need a new record. So then, in terms of the the songs on the record, was there mm. stuff that didn't make the cut just because it didn't have the connection or like fit within yeah. the the larger picture? Yeah, I, uh, I wrote all those songs when I was on the road and. China the previous year um, and I just kind of wrote about impressions and thoughts I had on, on traveling in you know different different areas than what I'm used to living in and um, there's definitely some stuff that either wasn't relevant anymore subject matter wasn't relevant anymore or the song just wasn't good enough and that's important too that you realize um, that you know not everything you write is up for it you know some songs might be great live but doesn't mean they're great on record and just the other way around um and for me it's also important to bounce ideas off friends and family and usually there are people who have nothing to do with music who don't play instruments but who actually just listen to music um and either like it or don't i think that's a very important uh, uh criteria and, and feedback to get because musicians listen to it one way, but then the people who actually, you know, what music is about is, is, is a little bit more subconscious, not so brain-oriented. Right, that they're they're coming at it from a layperson's perspective. That Yeah, yeah. And when, that's really, when you think about it, that's what, what music is about, is to bring people together. And it's not about listening to it and, and figuring out with the brain what someone does in that music. That's maybe greatly to get to the music, but then that's not the purpose of it. Sure enough. I want to get you to pick something off of the record that we can feature for listeners, and if you have a reason why you're picking it or an anecdote about the song, I'd love to hear that. Well, um, why 
me just pick the song with uh, Curtis since we just talked about that. Do you believe? Um, it's uh, I started to, to write the songs from a different angle. I I called Johnny, who is the drummer on the record, Johnny Vidakovich, and he's uh, one of my favorite drummers. He used to play on all the Professor Longhair and James Booker albums back in the day. And uh, I said to him, record a bunch of grooves, and then I will take them with me to China, and I'll, I'll write songs on top of some of these grooves and edit your grooves and just you know write songs on top of um, rhythm rather than coming at it from a melodic point. And um, and this track was kind of one of the first that I that I used, and you can hear it on the track. And then uh, the song is all about what we just talked about. It's really just what is it you want to do with your life and how do you want to record music or how do you want to live your day-to-day life and uh, do you do it the way you want it to or are you, uh, you know, are you doing it because your job or your environment is telling you something else to do? Um, just really staying true to yourself. All right, well, we'll give that one a listen. Uh, Saturday, June 23rd at Knox United Church as part of the Winnipeg Jazz Festival. Michael, thanks very much for taking some time and uh, safe travels in the interim. Thanks for the chat. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Why is it all about 
to stand out in a crowd when one day all the stars burn out. When one day they burn out. Coming to the Jazz Winnipeg Festival Saturday, June 23rd, playing Old Market Square at 9.15 p.m., pardon me, not in the morning. Dan Weiss, who brings his quintet and his record, Stair Baby. He joins us on the phone. How are you doing, Dan? Good. I'm doing good. Thanks, man. How so, you doing? I'm, I'm doing well. So the, the album is called Stair Baby, but it, the, the way that they've listed it in the, in the Jazz Festival program, is it the project also called Stair Baby, too? It's like Dan Weiss' Stair Baby? Yeah, the project is called Stair Baby. So yeah, that's the name of the group. Okay, so uh, I'm curious first of all where that name came from. Okay, well, uh, me and you know my friend Miles Okazaki, familiar with his work. Yep. Yeah, so we're, we're we're very good friends, and our families were at the beach one day, and I have a I had a newborn daughter at the time, and she was about. She was about 10 months at the time, and Miles' son, who's an 8-year-old, <clears throat> you got a stare baby, that's what he said. He referred to my baby because she's very curious. She's very always, you know, trying to <laughs> assess the situation. So it actually came from that, Miles' son, and the name st- stuck. Right. And it, and it, it felt like it, it fit the music. Um, took a long time to come up with that to... to uh, settle on that title but in the end the felt like it was it was the right the right move is it the like uh sort of curiosity and intense glare is that kind of like the the tone that your baby sets that also this this uh project represents um there's that yeah there's definitely some of that yeah that that that, that sums it up <laughs> right yeah it's an intense glare and uh definitely intense um definitely curious yeah, that's that's pretty good. So, in terms of putting this project together, because this follows like a couple of other, I would say, like different things, right? Fourteen and sixteen were were mm-hmm. much different pieces. Was this something always in the back of your mind that you wanted to do this? Because as I understand it, like kind of your earliest drumming uh, records were like Prague and like Zeppelin and stuff like that, and this seems to kind of be not necessarily like a, a pivot back towards that, but like an incorporation of some of like the heavy rock drumming. Yeah. Yeah. The first stuff I ever listened to, I was, ex- I was exposed to from my father. <clears throat> he was a guitarist, you know, by hobby, not professional, but 
Yeah, the first stuff I heard was Zeppelin and you know Hendrix and the Who, <clears throat> Cream, you know stuff like that. And then later, I got into uh, you know, other progressive bands, um, you know Rush and Yes and you know, Crimson and Floyd and uh, Gentle Giant. And then I got into some heavy, heavier stuff, heavy stuff, different genres of metal. And then, then you know, when I was about 14, I hit the, I got the jazz bug. But this this group, yeah, we've been talking about it. Uh, I've been talking about it since about 2005 or six when I met Trevor and I was doing a lot more playing with Craig um, back then. And we and Ben, so we were always talking about putting together, not always, but on a few occasions talking about putting together a band, you know, just with a heavier sound and with coming from a heavier place. And then... I met Matt in 2009, and we, you know, we had an instant uh, kind of um, the, the musical bond we had was was super tight. So yeah, so it goes back a while, it goes back, um, yeah, about 12 years. The the idea of it. Those and, those conversations with like uh, Craig and Trevor and stuff. Like, did you guys discover like an af- a shared affinity for like? like bands like Slayer or like heavier stuff or like, yeah, yeah there's, there's definitely an affinity for a lot of bands. Um, yeah, we were all, uh, definitely, uh, fans of metal. I mean, Slayer, one of them, you know, Sugar, Gorgots, Cryptops. Yeah. I mean, so, so many different bands that we realized that we, Oh, wow. We like these bands. So, um, obviously Trevor, you know, has played with some, some heavier acts, Bongo and you know all the stuff he's done with with Patton and the Phantomas and you know so mm-hmm. he, the Melvins so he's got a foot in there already so and then Craig Ben and Matt are you know very uh, very deep in too so that's just you know one of the influences for this record um, there's other stuff too obviously we're drawing on everything that we that we like but right. the sound and and uh, it's uh it's definitely a heavier sound, you know. So you mentioned this is like 12 years back. You kind of st- started talking about this. What pushed it to the foreground? Like, was there some sort of like uh, event or conversation that was like, let's let's actually do this? Yeah. Um, I was able to fortunately get a, a grant from the Shifting Foundation. And um, that was one of the, the projects that I, um, that I pitched. And... Uh, and that's how really it, it it came to fruition. You know, we got some very generous. Um, I was able to to get some some funding from them, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, that really made it happen. Now uh, now we're doing some some tours, and we we got some momentum. And I'm already uh, writing a second record for the for the group, so we're going to try to record it in in March of 2019. Hmm. So, yeah. so speaking of writing, uh, let's talk about kind of the, the genesis of the material on the record. Like, are you, you know, writing sheets for the guys or like what kind of process is things for you? Like how, how fully formed are tracks before you bring them to the, the, the group or, you know, are, are you guys jamming at all or how do you, how do you kind of develop tracks? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm the, the writer and um, from the very beginning of the, project and from the you know before i gave them any music i said i'm really open to you know any input any insight anything you want to add to it so i really wanted to 
not feel like a dictatorship, you know, with like a lot of other bands, you know, you people, you know, bring in music for their, their band. And obviously they're, they, they trust their band and they, they have their band and they're, they're willing to uh, go in different directions, but it's still, you know, it's a little more cut and dry. This is the music. This is how it's supposed to be played. So there was more of a, of um, finding things as we, as we rehearsed. Mm -hmm. That's, that's not to say that I didn't, um, you know, write a lot of material and, and wrote for, I wrote for about six or seven months. And, you know, I sent the guys file, like sound files and then, and, and sheet music at the same time so that they could hear at least the, you know, the sense of what each piece sounded like. So there's definitely the written aspect was, uh, was kept intact for the most part. But, you know, when we got into rehearsing and doing some gigs, you know, some stuff was taken out, some, you know, some stuff was, you know, embellished, some stuff was maybe, you know, doubled by an instrument or, or and then, and then in the mixing process, some, we found some stuff like that, you know, like um, at the end of uh, the tune, Bartolomente, um, that was kind of in the, in the studio, it was Craig's idea to, to do, you know, piano, I don't know if you, if you it's the track with the... Yeah, the, I, uh, I know the record front to back, so... Okay, it's the, it's so, it's the, it's the tune that was going to originally end with arpeggiators, the synthesizer, so... Um, but then it was Craig's idea. Why don't we play that, those lines on piano? And then I said, okay, cool. Why don't you play four piano four hands? And then so that was like a spontaneous thing in the studio. And then when we were, when we were mixing the record, we we were playing with uh, Ron Saint Germain was um, the engineer, and so we were just uh, experimenting with different fading points and you know lifting levels. So it, it was just uh, some experimentation with that, especially with that track. Had to end, so we brought the we faded the arpeggiators down and we faded the pianos up, and uh, that's how the piece ended. So there was some of that, a lot of that actually in the in the mixing process. We found um, some of the the architecture of the tunes, and so some of that has stuck in, in the live performances. Mm. Some of it hasn't, you know. I mean, there's limitations, right? Um, if, you know, but some of it has has stuck. You know, like that droney part at the end of of Annika, where we drone out like a long time. That was kind of found in the studio, and now we do that live, and we really, really stretch it. We go on for a while. So, yeah, it was a kind of a, um, a lot of different processes that happened. So, so some of the, the building that you did in, in the studio then, for those that isn't, you know, getting incorporated live, is it simply just kind of like technical difficulty of like accomplishing or recreating the, those those moments in a live setting, like that, something you're able to do with layering and engineering, and and, and sort of some you know. stuff, some stuff, yeah, you're able to do, and some stuff is just left. Okay, this is the recording, and then the live thing is going to be something different, you know. Right. Uh, you yeah. know, like for example, that to embodiment, they're they're on the arpeggiators, right? So they're Matt and Craig are both on the on the profits, and they're doing the arpeggiator thing, the layering thing. And so for them to go to the piano, it would mean that the momentum would get broken. So we just, we have that, you know, we have them stay there for, for the ending. Whereas the record, you just hear piano. So some things, 
you know, you're not, we're not going to um, uh, go out of our way to try to recreate the, the recording sound if it's going to, you know, mess up the continuity in a live performance. Right. We'll just leave, you know, leave them both as, as they are. Speaking of live performance, how do you build a set out of this record? Like, what kind of uh, considerations do you take into in terms of, like, you know, what things to hit or, uh, you know, how to sort of, like, build songs one into the next or tell a story? Like, what, what, what considerations are you considering? Um, well, if we have one set, a lot of the times... Uh, well, you know, when I was it's funny when I was putting the, together the, the record, a lot of different orders that set orders that it could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, I originally wanted to uh, start the record with Annika, which is it's a long tune, I think right? It's like maybe nine forty or something like that. Um, but then you know, there's considerations. You know, grabbing the listener, having something punchy maybe in the in the beginning. Um, to start the record. Um, so there, there's different considerations. That works well as an opening tune, the yeah. Annika tune. It, it, uh, it's a very slow build. It, it allows us to hear the room. It allows us to adjust to each other dynamically. And it kind of sets the vibe up. So that's really, that's an opener that we've been we've been doing consistently from show to show it works you know for various the various reasons i i just spoken about yeah i mean from you go ahead that makes a lot of sense to me because one of the things i like at times this record i mean feels like a like a doom record and for me like doom is all about like tone and pace totally and those are like kind of the two things that the band controls and and takes the the listener with them on and and annika definitely like feels like doomish Especially. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I was in a band called Bloody Panda for a couple of years, and they were just a straight up doom band. So when I was playing with them, <clears throat> I got exposed to a lot of those groups, and I really, really liked that that genre, you know. Um, um, so yeah, there's definitely a couple couple nods throughout the record to 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 that that kind of vibe, and um, but just having that space in the beginning lets lets us really feel each other out feel the room out and we're able to go from there so that's that's a big consideration you know usually episode eight is it's closing the record and it closes the show so we kind of stick to the, the recording actually um besides the first tune you know right it's uh it's pretty it's pretty um front to back you know we'll play we'll play the record it's a, it's, um, you know, if we have two sets, that's a different story, you know. Um, we'll put, maybe we'll stretch things out a little more. We won't. We'll play maybe four or five tunes. Maybe we'll repeat a couple tunes. You know. Does the does the architecture of the songs allow you to kind of like stretch things out easily? Like, do you find that th- th- there's gaps or or breathing space in, in the songs that you've written that that allow you to kind of play with the the pace? Yeah, and um, and as we played more, you know, I've, I've decided to open a couple more things up, more than the record. So um, now, you know, as the the, the the tune veiled starts with that um, 
the modular synth thing. Now we start kind of collective improv. We go into the tune. You know, that's an example. Um, we stretch. Um, we stretch on a few other things uh, more than the record. A couple tunes are, are pretty much as they are, and we're not going to change them. Like the first tune, Punch's Chance, that's uh, that's as is. So it's it's a short tune, and we keep the form like that. There's not really stretching in that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the That's second tune, like a quick in and out track, so it maybe loses some of its efficacy if you do try to push yeah, it. Yeah, and you want to keep some punch to some things, and you want to have some variety and, and pace, like you said, and length and intensities. If every tune's long, long tunes are going to lose their their meaning, you know. So right, I want to keep some of that intact. But yeah, there's definitely considerations. So if we're playing a live gig and we're playing two sets, maybe we'll stretch a couple tunes longer than we did if we played a one-set gig. You know, there's a couple two-set gigs coming up. There's a bunch of two-set gigs coming up on this on this tour. So mm. we'll figure that out. We've we haven't done that yet. We've only done one set, which is actually a lot more conducive for this so far. You know, we have one one recording, so right. um, one one set's perfect. But we'll we'll figure it out the two set then before we go down i want to get you to pick a track off the record that we can play for listeners uh and if you have a reason why you're picking that song in particular or an anecdote about it uh, i'd love to hear that uh how much time you got whatever you want let's do episode eight okay album closer episode eight uh the album closer that that comes from oh, i was heavily into uh i still am but twin peaks especially this this last season the, the return iteration. season yeah so uh, that episode really, <laughs> you know, I was doing a lot of writing around that time. Twin Peaks it started in May of uh, 17. Um, yeah, I think May. And then, you know, me and my wife would watch it. Matt Mitchell would come over every weekend with his girlfriend and we'd watch it. And so that there's a lot of uh, just, just uh, the show really influenced me. Um in, in the writing process, and especially that that episode, which blew me away, and never seen anything like it. Um, so I try to capture some of uh, some of that world you know, on, on that in that tune. Right. Yeah. I I hadn't. I mean, I knew you had a track named Battle Lamenti. I didn't know you. The, the episode eight was specifically named after that episode. Yeah, that, that, was, that, that was makes sense that. now. That That's that. certainly yeah. So you know Lynch he, he juxtaposes those two worlds you know in, in a lot of his work that he's got the he's got the dark underbelly and he's got the this kind of soap opera-ish thing and um it's, it's something that I thought about when I was writing Perfect. how to juxtapose to two different kind of sound worlds awesome well Dan thanks very much for taking some time to talk talk about the project and, and looking forward to seeing you at the Winnipeg Jazz Festival man oh my pleasure and I look forward to seeing you I hope you guys enjoy it
All right. Well, Manchester Trio Go Go Penguin coming to the Winnipeg International Jazz Festival in support of a Humdrum Star, their latest record. Bassist Nick Blacka joins me by phone. How are you doing, Nick? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. So uh, I want to talk a, a little bit about this record and then kind of back the train up to talk about kind of the, the band's history as well. Um, was there any difference in, in terms of approach to recording this record than in previous efforts, or, or is it kind of just a continuation of kind of the path that you guys have been on for a while? I guess it's a continuation of, of where we've been in terms of that we were using the same team where we always use Joe Riser, who's our live sound engineer. He's like the fourth member of the band. He also records the albums and he, he co-produces with um, a guy called Brendan, uh, Brendan Williams, who, um, so they've been with us since V2.0. So in, in terms of going in and recording, it kind of feels the same. It was a little bit different actually, because, um, this is the first time we've recorded in Manchester. We recorded it at um, the old Granada Studios, which is an old television st- uh, studio that isn't in use anymore. And it's a great studio that Brendan's got access to. So in terms of, of the team going in, it's kind of the same, but we had a bit more time this time. And I think we approached it. Maybe we're a little bit more experimental in terms of um, arrangements and maybe just a little bit more perhaps a bit more daring with certain aspects of making it. Was there like simply just because of access to Granada that you decided to record in Manchester or had you guys hoped to kind of do it closer to home rather than having to travel to a studio? Well, when we first did V2.0, it was all very exciting to get away and, you know, we'd never really been touring or anything before. So we, we, we did those um, V2.0 and man-made objects. We did, uh, in a residential studio in Wales where we got to stay over and it was out in the countryside and it was beautiful. But because since then we've done so much touring, we've gone around the world and everything, I think the idea of being in Manchester was very appealing just because we're never here anymore. So just to, even to leave the studio for, you know, seven, eight hours to get some sleep, um, just to get out of the madness and, and recharge and then come back was quite an appealing thing for us. Yeah, I have to ask in terms of creatively, is it better for you to to have like the routine of, you know, going back to your own bed and stuff like that versus kind of that like pressure cooker of, of being away and having like a limited time in a studio? Is that does that change things dynamically? I think it was just really necessary this time around. I mean, we spend so much time together and we don't really get to see a lot of friends and family anymore because we're we do so much touring. So this time around, it, it was much better for us creatively. In the past, it was great to just isolate ourselves, think, right, we're going to go make a record. So we're going to be shut off from the world and do that. But for this one, definitely, I think it was good that we were back in Manchester. Now, you mentioned uh, that, that both you and Joe came on for V2.0. Obviously, there was a record prior to that. Um, when Joe yeah. came on, did he come on as like live sound engineer and recorder like engineer co-producer at the time or did he just come on as like the live sound engineer and then in the recording process it became something that he took on like was it identified from the start that these were both his roles uh no it wasn't actually i I, I don't think so anyway not as far as i'm aware i I think his role sort of developed and grew into the what he is now which is 
he is the fourth member of the band and he, he's so integral to every aspect of it because he does the tour managing as well. But at the time, I think they actually got him on board, obviously, just to do the live sound. Because we joined at the same time, me and Joe, so right. um, they, they needed, you know, the idea was to get a better sort of live sound. And also, just amplifying the double bass, they were struggling a little bit with the old bass player. And then when he left, I came in and Joe was there, and he, he was just a, the live sound engineer, but... Um, yeah, when it came to make the album, it was just, he was the guy that, that stepped up to do it, and he's been doing it ever since and getting better for every record, I think. Now, producer can kind of mean a few different things depending on, you know, the person in the chair and, and the relationship with the band. Like, how much of a a stamp on the, the arrangements or the sound does, does Joe have, or is he, like, just kind of trying to get the ideal recording sound for you? What's What's his role? It's a bit of both. I mean, he knows us so well. Like when we first started getting together, he was there for a lot of the rehearsals. And when we do the, like when we're writing tunes or coming up with arrangements, he's still there. So he's actually the guy you can say, sometimes we think we've got it in the studio and think, all right, we've nailed it. And he says, you haven't got it, which isn't always the easiest thing to hear. But um, yeah, he kind of plays that role for us. So um, I, I mean, him and Brendan do it. Brendan's co-producers, he's really good. He, he he like lectures at one of the universities in Manchester in sound recording and he just knows us so well as well. So I think it's the fact that they can they know what our strengths are and they can speak to us honestly and openly about things. Which is good. Do you guys road test material before heading into the studio? We did for this album. It was the first time we've ever really I mean, sometimes there's the odd tune here and there where, you know, like it's maybe been written a bit before the rest of the album, so it gets thrown into the set before um, the album comes out. But um, for this one, we actually put some little uh, small secret shows in, in London. I think we did three nights in um, just a small space. Um, it's called Echoes, I think, in, in Shoreditch in London. And uh we we just in, in, it was invite only for people who were coming to some who'd already bought tickets to some of our bigger gigs and and uh, it was good actually it was good to it was a bit nerve wracking because we couldn't really play the tunes but we got the opportunity to uh, try them for a live audience for the first time. So I have to imagine coming out of that, then Joe is able to definitely say like you have it or you don't have it when you're in the studio because he's seen these songs live. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, like he gets to see, like we're all there playing every night, but he gets to see it like slightly from the outside, um, and so he probably has a better idea than than sometimes we do. <laughs> he has kind of the like editorial eye that uh, you know he's not quite as close to the to the writing of the material. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So. In in terms of the uh, the songs on a humdrum star, as I understand it, your your writing process kind of varies from track to track. That you guys sometimes you'll bring in a in a bass bass loop for folks. Sometimes there'll be you know kind of a drum pattern or or like a jam coming out. Like was that atypical for you? Like in terms of a humdrum star, like th- that's you know it's a mishmash of writing styles and and sort of births of different songs. Yeah, it kind of gets glued together sometimes. Um, 
you know, like one idea will come from somewhere and then another idea will, will come from another person and we'll kind of work them in together. I mean, sometimes it's a more fully formed idea that's on a logic project or other times it's just like, well, I've got the this set of chords and then we add stuff to it and it kind of forms out of that. Um, but we, we always get in a room together, the three of us, to to really, everybody to put their mark on it. And sometimes it, it happens very quickly and other times we might be looping, you know, four bars for a day and feel like we're not getting anywhere with it and what where's the tune going to go and then one day it'll just click. But um, some of them come together very quickly, but yeah, sometimes it's quite laborious. Are there times where you kind of end up abandoning an idea just because you can't seem to circle a square? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a few like that that hasn't quite come to fruition. It's very weird making an album because there's, when you first start out, you kind of have a, an idea of what it's going to be, but it never can really fully grasp what the complete thing is going to be. And sometimes when we're working on stuff, I have this vision that, this track's going to be really big and then it'll end up being a bonus track or vice versa or or it doesn't make it onto the album because we, we didn't quite get there with it. And it's quite interesting, actually. But there's a few that little ideas and stuff that are still floating around that haven't fully formed into what they're supposed to be yet. So so at what point do you know that you're done with, the, like, A, with a song, but B, with, like, the record as it's going to be, you know, released to the world? Well, the, with the record, it's usually just time constraints. Right. Um, I mean, I think if we didn't have them, we'd, we'd probably take a bit more time and maybe we'd never let it, let it go, so it might be a good thing to have deadlines. Um, I mean, you're never fully satisfied with an album, um, but you've got to sort of have an idea of when it's time to let go and move on. Um, some songs, I don't know, I mean, like, um, when, when we get out there and start playing them live, it, it's one of those sort of, it's a bit bittersweet because you've already recorded it and then it starts coming together and then you start thinking, oh, I could have done this on this track and whatever, but it's already been recorded for the album. So gotcha. you just have to let go at some point. <laughs> right. Um, so I read an interview that said that you got into the bass because it was like a a friend's brother's band you saw and you were like drawn to the bass guitar. Uh, I mean, that makes, yeah. that makes perfect sense. You know, as a kid, you, you see something and you, and you kind of want to emulate it, but that doesn't necessarily lead to the double bass and, you know, playing upright bass. If you saw, you know, like a bass guitarist in, in a, in a rock band or something, how did you end up, you know, in, in lugging around this, this, uh, this giant, uh, upright bass? <laughs> I don't know. I keep asking myself that. <laughs> Um, well, it was just a, a progression thing. So I started playing like sort of indie covers and typical Manchester sort of stuff on the bass guitar. And then I got, I just became obsessed with it, practiced all the time, started discovering different types of music, like, you know, 60s and then funk and a bit of jazz. And then I went to study for A-level music and my, I had a really good bass teacher at the, at the time and he played double bass and he was a jazz double bassist so he got me more interested in that approach and then i started seeing double bass sort of like featured not in 
I didn't really know too much about like a lot of straight ahead jazz, but there was quite a big crossover thing that I kept seeing, you know, like where jazz players are playing with hip hop artists or like the late nineties sort of drum and bass thing. And my bass teacher, my second bass teacher was double bassist for a, a group called Lamb. Who, uh, oh Lamb yeah, no, I, I know Lamb, yeah. Yeah, so, and that was quite inspiring to me because he was like doing um, small jazz gigs around Manchester, but then like going off and playing like Glastonbury and doing things on the radio with Lamb. And it was like, wow, you know, just that, the scope for this old instrument that you can take it and play jazz and straight ahead stuff, but it's still been used in modern music and for break beats and drums. And, you know, that, that was kind of what inspired me really. Did you catch finger thing when you were younger? Finger thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Sneaky. Yeah, because yeah, I was gonna say that's a, a that's a UK uh, that's a Manchester act that you know has a, a upright bassist and and blends electronic and jazz and stuff like that. So, I could... yeah, well, they used to be signed to a label called Grand Central Records, which is now defunct in Manchester. But it, for a while, they were it was a really cool label, and there was another artist on there called Aim and. Uh, he put together a live band, and I used to play the bass in his live band. He was like a hip-hop kind of producer, DJ kind of thing. So he shared a label with Finger Thing. Yeah, uh, trying to think what uh, the records were that aim. Um, Cold Water Music, is that the one? Cold Water Music, yeah, yeah. that's right. So it was a, a little bit before my time in terms of like me being in that band, but then when he did the third album, Flight 602, um, I was in the live band for that. You were in the live band for that. Uh, I know yeah. in, in reading a, a couple interviews that uh, you were talking about kind of like different influences and that, you know, you guys get kind of pushed into the, the jazz uh category but that you often cite a lot of like more of electronic artists like Aphex Twin and John Hopkins uh Fortet yeah. is that kind of like were those kind of more the foundational artists for you were in the in the electronic vein but uh, electronic artists who really kind of push at the edges of like live instrumentation or arrangement or composition well I, I think what's inspiring about the electronic artists that like people like John Hopkins and Aphex Twin and everything it's just I don't know that it's like the the they sort of occupy a world that there's no rules, but it's still very inspiring because it's almost like anything's possible with the technology. Like if you say you're you're a jazz band, this is sort of why we try and get away from the jazz band thing a, a little bit because people then expect a certain thing from you, which you're not necessarily going to get from us. You know, like we're not going to do a big unaccompanied bass solo, although we do do some of that actually, but you know, like, and then the, the drums play fours and all that stuff. It, it's more like we're, we're more interested in trying to create a, a different sound world. And a lot of that inspiration comes from electronica and, and these artists and th there's no real established set of rules. If you want to try and make something, then, then that's what you can do. And it, it's just quite, quite inspirational. There does seem to be like a reemergence of, of British jazz, though. Like, I mean, I know like uh, stuff like Shabaka and the Ancestors and Sons of Kemet and, and Yaz Ahmed and stuff like that. Are you guys kind of in touch with or part of uh, that community or do you kind of stand aside of that? Um, 
we're not really like I mean obviously we know those guys and, and we know Shabaka we've we've met him a few times just generally on gigs and we went out and played South by Southwest in America and a lot of those guys were there but I, I guess maybe because we're in in um, in Manchester it's we're slightly out on our own a little bit right but yeah we know we know about those guys. The one jazz act that I, I really do feel there, there's like a kindred spirit to is uh, Isper and Svensson trio. That like listening yeah. to the new record, A Humdrum Star, like very much so a couple times I was like, wow, like this feels like it could have been on an EST record from, from about seven, eight years ago. Uh, is that conscious? Like is that someone you listened to or that you guys talked about or, you know, factored into? Definitely in the early days. Um, I mean, for Chris particularly, um, the Espeon Svensson trio was what first made him want to, because he wanted to be a classical pianist, but he loved like a lot of electronica stuff. But like when he first heard EST, that was the, the sort of turning point that made him want to do a band and a trio. So it's very much for him, but for all of us as well. Yeah, they were, they were I mean... There was nobody else really like them at the time, and they were very, very inspirational and sort of forward-thinking with what they did. I mean, we don't we try not to reference them consciously, but people still say that we, you know, what we're doing sounds like them, and you can only take that as a huge compliment, really. Right. The interview that I read, you were also apparently about to work on, a, or had maybe debuted a, a live score to Koyaneskatsi. Yes, yeah, yeah. That I'm curious. Was, uh, in, in terms of that well, experience and working on something like that, do you feel that it's prepared you going forward in terms of your, your own sort of creations for for Go Go Penguin? Like, do you do you feel like this is something outside of what you normally do, or it could be part of like a larger whole of like Nick as a musician? Um. Well, I think that that project was something that. We we were invited to uh, to do it was for um, it was the opening of like an art house sort of cinema and theatre space and a great arts venue in Manchester called Home and they were getting um, Manchester bands to do soundtracks for silent films and it was something that Rob particularly had always wanted to do like he's been fascinated with Clayton Scatsy for years so we kind of jokingly said oh we'll do that and then they somehow got the rights so it's like okay we've got to do this now. Um, and it, it was a great thing. It, it's a slightly different way of working, of writing, because you're having to think about scenes, camera changes, and it was a lot of work we put in. You know, we, we needed to create like a click track and have lots of cues for different scene changes and when the music changes. So it's definitely good. I mean, we, we'd, we'd like to get into film scores and stuff in the future, um, and it it was a lot of work, but yeah, it was. Well, it makes it, sense because definitely your music is cinematic, so it certainly makes sense to think that you guys could do scoring uh, going forward. Yeah. I was just curious about, you know, like, be, do you feel like kind of hemmed in because there's like someone else's images and you have to match that timing versus, you know, when you're in the studio, you don't have to consider that thing. You might have a picture or or a visual in your head, but it's it's not like set in stone that like you know you have to pivot here or hit this mark. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's a different thing. You're kind of making music just for, you know, like the, the sake of making music when you, you're making 
albums. I mean, it's the music stands upon its own, but yeah, it is a slightly different thing when you write into a film. But um, we're really proud of what we did for that, and it was a good project. Right on. Nick, before we go, I want to get you to pick a track off the latest record that we can uh, play for listeners. And if you have a reason why you're picking it or an anecdote about the song, I'd love to hear that. Okay. Um, I think I'll go with Transient State. This is... Uh, it's, um, it's an idea that Chris started with, and he was sort of inspired by a trip to Tokyo. And me and him had a day out, and we went to see some temples and various things around Tokyo and had a great day and it kind of inspired this tune and, and we were working on it, especially the main section for ages, trying to figure out what the right thing to do with the bass was and, and the drums and eventually it was like the bass and the piano playing and the cross rhythm and the drums sort of playing this crazy thing. And I don't know, I think it's a real leap forward for us and one of the standout tracks on the album. All right, well, we will uh, give them one to listen. Uh, Go Go Penguin playing the Western Cultural Center as part of the Jazz Winnipeg Festival June 24th. That's a Sunday. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for taking some time out of your day to talk about the record and very much looking forward to seeing you at the festival. Thanks very much. Looking forward to the gig. (laughs) 